A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Sonnet 59, the 20th of May, 2020, by Jacqueline Safra. Europe should brace for second wave, says EU coronavirus chief. The Guardian. Remember Brick Lane Sundays? Bagel bake, garum masala, artisan baristas, sellers of hip and vintage on the make, the smell of weed, the Sunday lager drinkers, trestle tables, strangers skin to skin, the men who stood outside the curry houses, flaunting menus, beckoning you in, how you walked by, assailed by choice. Remember Shadwell Station and the sight of dealers on the corner, fried chicken round the clock, the homeless begging late at night, how you never liked the overground. Remember how you wished the world would change. Remember when the trains were just the trains. Jackie, at this point, I usually ask my guest, where did this poem come from? But in this case, it did not come alone, did it? No, no, it didn't. It came as part of a a sequence of poems that was actually a hundred sonnets written during lockdown, during the first lockdown, starting on the 23rd of March, 2020. And I had no idea that this was going to end up being a hundred sonnets. I just started on this adventure because I felt like I had to do something to keep myself going, to keep myself sane. Um, in fact, I tried writing a diary and it was incredibly tedious. So I thought, what, what do I do well? And I thought, well, I've written a sonnet a day before, so I'll have a go at that and see how far I get. Okay, because, I mean, I remember seeing you on Twitter and saying you were doing this, and I just, I was gobsmacked by the kind of, the energy and the courage, because I was thinking, isn't there enough to do without having a sonnet to do every day? But I mean, how did it? How did that feel to you? Did it feel like adding on to the challenge, or did it? Did it help with the challenge? The, the formal challenge of the sonnet, you mean? Um, I think it. it or ev- even just even just saying I'm going to do a poem a day. Even to, I know you're raising the bar with it being a sonnet, but I mean, isn't mm-hmm. isn't there enough to think about? I guess. Some people might well, think. Well, I think I think there was a lot to think about, but I think that you know, if you are a if you are a, a serious writer, one of the ways that you process things is by writing. So yeah. for me, it seemed the logical yeah. way of coming to terms with what was going on, um, both the internal and the external weather, and charting mm. events as they happened. 
So it was a, it was just a way of keeping myself going. So far from being something that made life more difficult, I'd say, although the challenge of the sonnets is huge, actually made life more bearable for me. Uh, drove my family nuts, I think. But, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Did they have to listen to them every day? Oh, no, 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 no. Generally not. Um, but they did have to put up with me banging my head on the wall, you know, not literally, yeah. but metaphorically. Yeah. Sure. As I was, you know, trying to trying to get to grips with the formal challenges of the sonnet more than anything. And occasionally just trying to find something that I felt strongly enough to write about. And, I mean, I know this wasn't your first rodeo as a sonneteer, but even so, it's it's a lot to write by the time you've get to 100. I mean, I'm kind of curious because I got this impression, as with quite a few other sonnet sequences, is that as it went on, I really got that vivid sense of this is you thinking things through and maybe even feeling things through. To what extent did you start to think in sonnets during that period? I definitely started to think in pentameter, you know, those de-dum, 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 de-dum in my mind. And the more I got into it, the more I was thinking that way. And I'd wake up with lines of pentameter running through my head in the middle of the night. You know, by the time I got to Sonnet 50, it was was becoming a way of thinking. I'd say it was less um, a way of thinking of the actual structure of the sonnet, although those final couplets that you find in the Shakespearean sonnet, those way yes. of winding things up, those felt um, as if they were in me. And I was constantly struggling with this question of how you end the Shakespearean sonnet, because it's a really tricky one. You know, finding that couplet that isn't going to sound awful or a bit pat or a bit like doggerel, you know, but something that really um, has some meaning and can reverberate back up the poem again. Yeah, because um, there's a lot of expectation, isn't there, once the reader's clocked what you're up to. And, I mean, maybe just to help some listeners who may not be so familiar with the sonnet, could you just remind us of the outline of the Shakespearean sonnet and, and what is resting on that couplet? Well, the Shakespearean sonnet, you can usually divide it into three quatrains, that is to say three four-line sections. And it's a kind of development of thought um, that leads you to that final couplet. And in a Shakespearean sonnet, it will will traditionally kind of wrap it up and tie it up with a bow. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in contemporary poetry, we we prefer a more open ending. So it's always a question of, of balancing those two things in the final couplet. How do we keep it open, but still preserve the spirit of the Shakespearean sonnet, which does lead to that kind of something a bit conclusive. So you'll notice that in the sonnet I read, there are two questions at the end. So that's a way of getting around that feeling of having to come up with an answer, a solution, a um, precy or a summary or something like that. Yeah, which is absolutely... um appropriate to the subject here because you know 24 i mean well here we are over a year later but certainly on the 20th of may 2020 nothing was wrapped up and concluded was it no no and actually i'm i've been reading along my own sonnets as uh, as the dates have have gone by a year later and mm-hmm. so much is hasn't really changed that much i mean a few things have obviously but but the the spirit of what's going on this not knowing is is continual isn't it and do you think poetry is particularly good at helping us stay in that space of not knowing while still doing something constructive? 
Yes, because poetry doesn't try to answer everything and it's not factual. It's For me, it's a very emotional medium. Yeah. Um, I know that's not so for a lot of poets, but I like a really big emotional thwack from a mm. poem. And for me, that's enough to carry me through. It doesn't matter whether I'm hugely intellectually stimulated, although that is wonderful if that can happen along with the with the emotional thwack of the poem. And of course, the sonnet is a, a, an ideal form for putting thought and feeling together. So my ambition is to let both those things happen, but some, sometimes one will come to the foreground more than the other. Yeah, I, and I think as well, I mean, obviously what we're doing today is we're zooming in on one, but this is, what, number 59 out of 100. <laughs> so really mm. to get to get the full experience, folks, you, I, I'd strongly recommend you read the whole sequence. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite an amazing journey, you know, even only a year later and we're kind of still in it. It, it really had the sense of revisiting something very powerful. And I think going back to that idea about thought and feeling, one of the things that really struck me about the whole sequence is it's the relationship between objective fact and your subjective experience, your thoughts, your feelings, your own personal concerns, because you've, you've got headlines as uh, epigraphs all the way through, which is yeah. another really interesting choice you made could you maybe talk about that and and the relationship between the voice of the headlines and the voice of the poem well it felt important to locate these sonnets in time and space I suppose mm. so it was a question of how to do that whether I was going to embed some of the information into the poems or whether I was just going to say it up front and for me it, it was really helpful to have those those um, epigraphs just to anchor the poem in in the real world, but then enable me to uh, move somewhere else, wherever that was going to be. And occasionally, um, I can admit, I did add a little bit extra. When, when it came to revising the poems, if I felt that it was not clear where the poem was, I added another little epigraph or I maybe changed the one that I had because I didn't want a, the poems to end up weighed down by fact or yeah you know that that was it I didn't want them to be weighed down by fact I want the fact to speak and then the poem to speak in a different kind of way so you did revise them I mean it reads, oh god yeah because <laughs> it reads wonderfully fresh and taking taking you back account and I guess mm, the newspaper mm. headlines that helps with that but mm. what journey did each of the sonnets go on then in that in that case well they were hugely variable you know some of them arrived almost fully formed but many of them needed work. And my objective in reworking them, which is perhaps different to any other kind of reworking I've ever done, was to be true to where the sonnet was written and what I yeah. knew at the time that I wrote it. So I was really trying not to use hindsight in any of these poems, right. not to look back and <laughs> be able to rewrite what I'd written to incorporate what we know now that we didn't know then. And to a large extent, I think I succeeded in that. I had to really put myself in that space, you know, ground myself in the space of the poem and think within this poem and what this poem is getting at, how can I keep it true to itself and you know not not mess around with it too much but particularly those those conclusive um couplets they were the ones that that took the most time they always do with the shakespearean sonnet and these are not all shakespearean sonnets so there are some um petrarchan sonnets in it with the eight lines um 
kind of argument and then the counter argument with the next six lines. And there are also some sonnets that break right out. Um, for mm. example, when when uh, Donald Trump suggested that we might uh, inject ourselves with disinfectant. <laughs> and there was that wonderful video of Dr. Burks sitting on the sideline, her face. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Burks is just a great line for rhyme, a, a great word to rhyme with. Um, so I wrote a whole sonnet where all the end rhymes were rhyming with Burks. And that was enormous fun, you know. So so I, I didn't really stick all the way through to the to the formal sonnet structure. Sometimes I let myself wander. And I think that is actually, I think if I'd done formal sonnets all the way through this um, yeah. sequence, it would have been a bit tedious, actually. Yeah, and that one is really funny. That's, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to see you just, just changing. I guess maybe in the way that, that Mr. Trump changed, changed the premise <laughs> of so many things. But anyway, let's not yeah. go down that rabbit hole. Um, so <laughs> I, it was interesting when you said you were talking about revising, you know, being true to the original experience, true to the original time, because, you know, I think a lot of time people think of revision as, I don't know, improving or layering something on, on top. And there's, the, of course, the romantic idea of the original effusion of inspiration. <laughs> how, how do you approach revision? Um, lots of different ways, but quite often a poem for me will go through maybe, you know, 50, 60, 100 drafts, honestly. And um, for me, there's no such thing as free verse. I prefer to use the term open forms because I mm-hmm. think every poem has to have a form. Yeah. I think it's more a question of whether that form is given or whether you invent it or create it or something like that. So, so w- with a sonnet... It's more meticulous, I think, the, the revisions that have to happen. They're very much more particular, much more craft-based from quite an early stage, whereas with an open form, I often will try so many different types of lineations and so many types of shapes before the poem realises itself, because I'm a great believer in the poem realising itself rather mm-hmm. than the poet realising the poem. Mm-hmm. So it's, what does this poem want to be? Yeah. Um, is the big question always. And maybe we don't always hear it or get it first time round. Yeah, or even the 20th time round. <laughs> you know, yes. I've, I've left things in the drawer for years and I've got them out and I've thought, oh, that's what it wanted to do, you know, yeah. but you, you can't rush it sometimes. So this, of course, was a very different process because normally I would expect the poem to find the form rather than the form to find the poem. Mm-hmm. And in, in this case, of course, because of, the nature of the sequence, I had the form already. And thank goodness the sonnet is such a malleable form because it really enables you to um, try lots of different ways of approaching it. So, so it, it doesn't become formulaic in any way, you know, because you can keep messing with it, as many people have. Yes. Okay, and then if we can look a, a little more closely at, at number 59, which you've read for us today, I mean, I love the basic premise of this, remember Brick Lane Sundays. I mean, that's something you might say, you remember Paris in the 1920s or whatever, but it was only a few weeks ago. And mm. for anyone who doesn't know this part of London, um, Jackie has absolutely evoked it beautiful. I mean, it was particularly nostalgic for me, I guess, because I moved out of London about four or five years ago. But it must be even weirder that if, you know, it's just down the road and yet you're nostalgic mm. for that, that basic mm. premise that you have. 
It's it's funny, really, isn't it, that the things that used to annoy me, I suddenly feel really nostalgic about. You know, there's That's another it. one about the central line, yes. you know, where I'm just talking about how I how I miss the the um, being crowded on the central line on the tube, which I hated, you know. Um, and this this poem, similarly, you know, the the I used to get a bit scared when I was going through Shadwell Station late at night, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes was you know people would be quite difficult on the train. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you'd have to deal with all of that. But it, but looking back on it, suddenly it seemed very precious, you know, that I might have wished the world would change, but now, but but it was as it was and that we weren't struggling with this, this huge um, cataclysm that we were facing on the 20th of May 2020 and we're still facing now, of course. Yeah, and I think for me, the, when you say that, it strikes me this is how you have resolved that tension between the 12 line of the four quatrains building up and then the couplet at the end in the Shakespearean sonnet. Because on the one level, this is a list poem. You know, you're listing all the things that you remember, the bagel bake, garam masala, artisan baristas, and so on. And even just that in itself, I mean, poet, poets love lists and it's just delicious yeah. to, to just enumerate it and kind of salivate um, as you go through it. But then, you know, when you read it particularly last I started to notice bits leading up to the questions at the end. So you've got this phrase in line eight. Remember how you walked assailed by choice? Like choice used to be a nuisance. It was the guy standing at the door trying to get you to come into his restaurant and people were pushing past you because there's so much choice going on in in a place like that. And then, of course, you, you say, remember how you never liked the overground and you wished the world would change. And then it, that that fantastic last line remember when the trains were just the trains yeah well they didn't have any meaning other than they got you from one place to another place did they and sometimes it was annoying because they were crowded or sometimes it was upsetting because someone was drunk or angry or abusive you know there were all those things going on but the trains were just the trains we didn't really think about the possibility they might not be there anymore or we might not be able to go on the trains which is actually what happened wasn't it yeah I don't know. I, I really love those two last lines when you, you were wishing something would change and, and now it has changed and be careful what you wish for. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I guess we were all, you know, we were all dissatisfied with how things were. Um, but this was not the change that we no, no. Would have wanted. <laughs> that is not <laughs> what I meant at all. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's traditional in the in the sonnet for the couplet to introduce a new perspective or a shift in meaning or, or, or whatever. But you know, what you've really done here is just mirror this huge shift in life and, and what the everyday objects that you're enumerating, what they mean at a very, very basic, almost like existential level. Yeah. And actually, as we're talking about this poem, I th- I'm, I'm thinking, who am I asking these questions? Who, who is the addressee? And I think mostly it's myself. <laughs> You know, obviously, a poem's about communication. So it's, but it's not clear who who I'm speaking to. So I can be speaking to my reader, and obviously I am. Mm. But I think I'm also interrogating myself, which is something that I think I was doing throughout these hundred sonnets, one way or another. And I also think there's something about the situation that we're all in right now, which means we're all living through some version of what you're describing. You know, it's obviously different in different 
parts of the world, even different parts of the country. But mm. I think on some level, it, it's like the, the unique subjective experience of a poet maybe is more relatable and even maybe more newsworthy than it might be in, in the old fragmented world that you're looking back on. That now we're, we're in a way we're all in the same boat. Mm. I, I like that. I like the idea that there might poetry. I like the idea that poetry is useful. And I felt that I was actually, I began to feel as I started to sort of, sort of tentatively push these poems out into the world, mostly on social media, that they were a bit like meals on wheels um, <laughs> in an emotional sense. That, that, but that I was, that I was in some way gauging the temperature of the world and responding to it in a way that people could relate to. So they were seeing their experience mirrored in some way in what I was writing about. Um, there, was, there was one I wrote quite early on about, about loving everybody and loving everything yeah, suddenly. Yeah, yeah. And this was about a week or two into the lockdown. And, and everyone was thinking that, you know, or a lot of people were anyway, and a lot of people were feeling this love for everyone around them. It didn't last, sadly, but... But there was a, a point at which um, everyone was experiencing this incredibly positive feeling, and I got, and I put this poem out on um, on social media and, and and got a kind of wave of, of response and reverberation coming back to me about how people knew exactly what I meant. Yeah. And I think there is something that poetry can do to um, give people a mirror so that they can see themselves in the poem. And because I think these were written, you know, at a specific time when everyone was experiencing some shade of the same thing, um, I was able to tap into a, a general mood or a feeling. I mean, that sounds terribly vain. I don't mean it to sound, sound vain, but... but um, I would absolutely I agree I, with yeah. you on that. I mean, I remember reading that one and just thinking, yes, that, that was real, that did happen. And we've we've all had a version of that. And also maybe the particularly the sense that we're all having that together. We're all feeling the same things together a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. It's like the world's worst football match where, <laughs> you know, you <laughs> guarantee that all the people around you have got some version of the, the, the same feelings that you have that uh, maybe makes it more bearable. Um, so for me, I found, Jackie, this, this whole sequence, a really moving experience, really valuable experience on a personal level. And I also think you're right. There is something useful about poetry because although, you know, in the newspaper world, we say, okay, well, we all felt that for a bit and now we've all fallen out and, you know, we're divided again. But actually what having it in the poem and in the sequence means, no, but it was real. I don't think you can just dismiss it because we then moved on to something else in our kind of linear timetable or mm. train timetable. Yes, I think that's right. I think we are all on a journey and, and vestiges of all these things, you know, remain in us. And, and it, indeed, that, that whole feeling of love and connection with each other and with people we didn't even know, I think has been consistent in some way throughout this period, even if some awful things have happened as well and some terrible divisions have happened, that there is some truth in the fact that that, that, um, that positive feeling doesn't go away. It's still there. It's still in a lot of us. And I think the poem reminds us yeah. that it's still there. So alongside all the anger in some of the poems, because there is a great yeah. deal of political anger, and some of them mm. are very overtly political and yeah. absolutely furious, mm -hmm. um, there, are these, there are these positive moments and these moments of human connection that I think 
um, we need to hang on to at the moment. And I think poetry is a very good way of connecting us because it's short, you know, it's yeah. succinct. It's, yeah. it's um, you know, uh, emotional, emotionally literate. Yeah. Well, uh, Jackie, those moments of personal connection, I think you, there's so many of those in the book. And um, I really just feel like in times to come, as Shakespeare might say, people will look back and this will be one of the, the ways that we remember it. So I would certainly encourage anyone who has enjoyed today's one, you know, there's 99 more, go and read the whole book. Because you really, it, it's quite a, an extraordinary journey Jackie takes us on. So maybe we can finish up by hearing Sonnet 59 again. Sonnet 59, the 20th of May, 2020, by Jacqueline Safra. Europe should brace for second wave, says EU coronavirus chief. The Guardian. Remember Brick Lane Sundays? Bagel bake, garum masala, artisan baristas, sellers of hip and vintage on the make, the smell of weed, the Sunday lager drinkers, trestle tables, strangers skin to skin, the men who stood outside the curry houses, flaunting menus, beckoning you in, how you walked by, assailed by choice. Remember Shadwell Station and the sight of dealers on the corner, fried chicken round the clock, the homeless begging late at night, how you never liked the overground. Remember how you wished the world would change. Remember when the trains were just the trains. Sonnet 59 by Jacqueline Safra is from her collection 100 Lockdown Sonnets, published by Nine Arches Press. Jacqueline Safra is a poet and playwright. Other recent collections are All My Mad Mothers, shortlisted for the 2017 T.S. Eliot Prize, and Dad, Remember You Are Dead, both from Nine Arches Press. A Bargain with the Light, Poems After Lee Miller, and Veritas, Poems After Artemisia, are both published by Hercules Editions. Her most recent play, The Noises, produced at the Old Red Lion in 2019, was nominated for a Standing Ovation Award. She mentors and teaches for the Poetry School. Her website is JacquelineSafra.com <laughs> A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of 
every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.